Welcome to Growing Up Beverly Hills. I'm Stacy, And I'm David. We grew up together in Beverly Hills in the 1980s. Forget what you've seen in the movies or TV shows. We have the real stories about real people growing up in Beverly Hills. Here's a little known fact for you. There aren't any talking chihuahuas. <laughs> Beverly Hills folk drop a lot of names of people and places. We just can't help it. Don't worry, we'll explain it all at the end of the interview in the Beverly Hills Breakdown. Enjoy, subscribe, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Hey, Stacy, our guest today is somebody that we graduated high school with. Yes, it is. Or at least I did. Oh, yeah, I did. <laughs> we, we find out you didn't graduate. <laughs> Eventually, I graduated. That's my biggest accomplishment. We know her as Margot Precht, but her married name is Margot Precht Special. Margot Precht Special. We had a great conversation with her. We have a lot of old fun stories. Uh, some interesting people come up, Danny Bonaducci and Ricky Schroeder, to name a few. I love it. One of the most interesting things I learned from the show was that Margot and I actually hadn't spent that many years in the same city together. Even during that short time, I felt like we had a great connection, and I always think of her as one of my good friends. And I think you'll find in this interview, you'll see why. She's just so sincere. I agree. And I think it's a quality that her parents had and her grandfather had, and they certainly instilled in her. Margot's grandfather was Ed Sullivan, an American TV personality best known for his show, The Ed Sullivan Show, which is the longest-running variety show in broadcast history. It ran for over 23 years. He was known as being a hit maker. If someone came on the show, you were a star by the end of the show. And he had everybody on the show from The Beatles, Elvis, Stevie Wonder, Jackson 5, goes on and on. Everybody and anybody. And it also came on to over 40 to 60 million television sets every week. It That's was on amazing. every Sunday. Pretty amazing. And it was a really big shoe. Oh my God. Margot's not going to like your imitation. There it is. It's a really big shoe. He kissed Pearl Bailey on the cheek. He shook Nat King Cole's hand. He treated everybody as they were the same. It was amazing that this was really unacceptable at the time, and he did it anyway. Oh my God, so amazing. And, you know, his whole career could have gone any which way, but he stuck to his guns and who he was as a person. And his show is, to this day, one of the most incredible shows ever on TV. And Margo's making a documentary about her grandfather, Ed Sullivan, and the focus of her documentary is how he was a civil rights trailblazer. Margot read us a quote from Harry Belafonte that I think sums it up better than anybody could. And I'll play her reading the quote, and then we'll go right into our conversation with Margot. Sounds great. Harry Belafonte said, It is one thing to look at the transformation of the United States of America through the prism what Dr. King brought to the table. But the civil rights movement would never have been able to sustain itself with the intensity that it did if there were not subtle forces at play. That subtle force was Ed Sullivan. Hi. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for joining us. So great to see you. Great to see you. I think we wanted to start today by just finding out when and why your family made the move to Beverly Hills because you came a little later. I did. I did. We moved to Beverly Hills in 1978. Basically, my dad is, well, was a television producer. And he was the television producer for, I guess, 11 or 12 years on the Ed Sullivan Show. And then after my grandfather, Ed Sullivan, passed away, he was doing a lot of work in LA and he was gone a lot and it was becoming more and more of an issue, you know, to have family time because he was in LA and my mom was gone. So it just seemed like the right time to move to California, to move to LA so my dad could be where the entertainment industry was. So what was that transition like for you moving from New York to Beverly Hills? It was really hard in a way, mm -hmm. but really cool in another way. Um, I left everything I knew in New York 
in Scarsdale. And I was the youngest of five kids. Everyone knew our family. My mom and dad knew all of our teachers. And it was very, very comfortable. I was a bit of a tomboy back then. And I just remember all the girls, you know, in Beverly Hills that summer, that they would wear these tube tops and dolphin shorts. And here I was, the New Yorker, who came with, you know, I was still wearing tube socks. <laughs> and I just really felt like a fish out of water um, in the beginning when, when I first moved there. <laughs> All you had to do was cut off your tube sock and wear it up top. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> How old were you and what grade was that? I was 12 years old and it was seventh grade. David, I'm pretty sure you were in my class. Yes, Margo and I went to Overdale together. That seventh grade, you know, walking in the first day being the new kid at school. Oh, it was tough. I just can't tell you. I, I had gone from being the kid everyone knew and knew their family and to, if, I don't know if you remember, but we were kind of like assigned numbers. We all had a number that was our identity, you know, and I had never been a number before. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't remember that. Number. That sounds more like a prison camp. Yeah, I'm like in Beverly Hills, we give numbers. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I think it was like for tracing whatever it was and the way they put together the class lists or... Hmm. So yeah, it was a really rough um, transition. But then on the other hand, I loved living in California. And my grandmother lived in Carlsbad. So we were close to her. My brother was going to USC. And he was home a lot, which was really nice, because we were really close. It took a while for me to kind of adjust to this new life of being 12, 13 years old. That's a rough age, you know? Totally. Yeah. I heard that your family not only moved into any house in Beverly Hills, but you moved into the Icon Shares home. What was that like? We moved in. We bought it from Cher. She apparently lived there with Greg Allman and Chastity. And back then, they used to have those, you know, uh, gray, what were those uh, tour buses? The Greyhound or the Gray? The Tours of Stars Homes? Yeah. They still have that. Yeah, yeah, they do. They were big buses back then. And they would come down our house on Linden. One day I was walking home from school and these people, I guess they had been on the tour and then they had come back because they were huge share fans. And they came like running over to me and they're like, are you Chastity? You know, is this your house? Is this Chastity? And and I was like, well, what the hell? Yeah, I'm Chastity. <laughs> <laughs> You're about the same age, right? <laughs> yeah, we were. Yeah. And so I was, you know, pretending that I was a Chastity, but I really didn't, you know, I didn't want to say too much. So I didn't really want to talk. I made their day is what the way I looked at it. You definitely did. I think that's the thing with those tours and those maps is your house is probably still on those tours and those maps. Well, David, my house is gone. They tore it down. Oh, they tore it down. Yeah, so sad. No, the bus probably still goes by. Our house actually had a really fascinating history even before that, back in, I think it was the 40s. Uh, what was his name? Howard Hughes. He was, you know, into airplanes and he flew an airplane and he actually ended up in a really serious crash. The crash went across Whittier and then into our house on Linden and landing across the street in another house on Linden. Oh, wow. There's actually footage of our house and him going back and surveying the area after the crash. And after that, that's when he went into hibernation and became a total recluse. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's super cool. Same house. And then the last thing about that house is that Cher, when she lived there on Halloween, she would dress up as a witch. And in our courtyard was this beautiful fountain. 
And she made our fountain into her witch's brew and would have smoke coming out of it. And she would, you know, stir the witch's um, brew and say hello to everybody. And did you go there, David, then? No, I never remember trick-or-treating yeah. there. Okay. No. Stacy, you were on the other side, right? I was. Were, yeah. I was. Yeah, yeah, I was near BV. We would always go in that neighborhood to trick-or-treat because they had better... Treats. Yeah, that's where we always trick-or-treated. <laughs> well, yeah, our, we were a block deal. away from the witch's house. The real witch's, well, not the real witch's, but you know what I mean. Which is an iconic home. Yes. Why don't one of us tell what it is? There's a house in North Beverly Hills that actually looks like a real witch's house. And it was the greatest for trick-or-treating. We'll post a picture of it. Yeah, you should put, there's lots of pictures of that. Yeah, I heard that it was originally on some lot I don't know if it was Disney or what lot it was, but it was used as, you know, a set and they moved it many, 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 many years ago. And it stayed that way and it really is creepy and it looks really creepy inside too. Yeah, the inside's in the similar way. Yeah. But I think I remember, didn't they give a whole candy bar? Yes. Or this giant taffy bar. Yeah, the taffy. I just remember Walden was just crazy during Halloween. I mean, there were just masses of people. I think they came from all over LA. They did. On that street. Yeah. They did. They did. We went wild. We would always do like shaving cream and eggs and try to egg people and shaving cream them. It wasn't the friendliest of holidays. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You were one of those boys. It was pretty crazy. Oh, and then I also got mono um, during Halloween, like right before Halloween, my first year there. And I was quarantined. Oh, you're you're (laughs) used to it. I know, I was quarantined. (laughs) I had to stay home. I couldn't go to school. I couldn't go anywhere. The school district assigned a tutor to come to the house and, and tutor me. So it was really sad because... Honestly, I didn't even, it was October and I started school in September. I didn't really have time to make friends and nobody called me. It Aww. was so sad. Oh, <laughs> it was so terrible. Mad, you know, I was, so I would talk to my friends in New York, but still it was just, oh yeah, it was not a good time. But you did meet your best friends there. Yes. I eventually, yeah. I mean, as I said, you know, it transitions can be very tough and I just think, Coming from New York, the East Coast, and going to the West Coast are so different. They were even more different back then, I believe. And uh, it just it took time to get adjusted. I also moved to Beverly Hills in seventh grade oh, as well. You did. Yeah. Wow. From where? I, from Los Angeles, near. Okay. Um, I just in LA, but my mom remarried, so then we moved into Beverly Hills, and that also was a transition as well. Yeah. So by the time you were just getting your friends together and everything like that, it was time for high school. So that was another big transition. Yeah. And interestingly, I didn't go to Beverly Hills High to start out. My mom heard some terrible stories from her friends about Beverly Hills High and all the drugs that were there. And she was scared to send me there. So she sent me to Marymount, you know, down Sunset across from UCLA. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so here I was, you know, really, you know, kind of, I don't know, just starting to feel so much more comfortable and making friends and, and making connections. And then I have to go to Marymount. And that was a major setback because it was a Catholic school and you had to wear uniforms and there were still nuns teaching. And it was, oh, the worst part, it was all girls. <laughs> oh, yeah, this must have been. <laughs> and this is like a horrible transition. Yeah. <laughs> like, how could they do that to me? <laughs> like, what was your mom thinking? <laughs> so my mom went to Marymount in New York City when she was a girl. So she, you know, always had a connection with the school and just she felt like, you know, that would protect me. Well, what she didn't know is that there's, it wasn't drugs just at Beverly. It it was everywhere, you know, and that wasn't going to be the magic pill um, to protect me. Back then, you know, it wasn't an issue at all for me. 
But so another, I can do name dropping with you guys. I, I really try to not do that here where I am um, because, you know, it's when you're not like amongst. Now you're amongst us all. Yeah. The person that used to drive my carpool to Marymount every morning was Bridget Kelly. Do you know who she was? No. No. She was Jean Kelly's daughter. Oh, that oh, helps. Okay. Yeah. We should have known. <laughs> so Jean Kelly's daughter, Bridget, was the sweetest girl. She was a few years older than me, and she drove. And so she drove me every morning. And I would look out the window and just, you know, wish I was at Beverly. And What made you get to Beverly? How did you get to Beverly? My dad. I was also really into tennis back then. I played on the junior circuit, and I was just really competitive tennis player. And he felt the tennis program was better at Beverly. He was right. And so he knew that I just really wanted to go there, and he convinced my mom to let me go. So sophomore year, I came back to Beverly. Gotcha. You were really tossed around. Just for those few years before that. Those are tough years. Those were tough years for sure. Yeah. And you graduated with us. Oh, and you, because I I didn't end up graduating in 84 from Beverly. Oh, you did? I ended up getting shipped to boarding school my last year. So then you graduated in 84. Yeah. After that, everything was much better, but I, (laughs) I needed to kind of get back to that poor group of friends I was just starting to make at LRO. Sure. So you picked up back with them pretty easily as a sophomore at Beverly. Yeah, and I was on the tennis team. And at that point, I was fairly good. You know, so like I eat through um, sports. I feel Mm -hmm. like that's I excelled more in sports. It gave me a lot of confidence and it just made things a little bit easier for me. Tell us a little bit more about your tennis career at Beverly High. When I came over... I actually, from Marymount, since I played for Marymount, I couldn't start on varsity. So they made me play JV. And I was like, number one JV, which was great because, you know, we did really well. I just loved it. I, at the time, I thought I was going to play, you know, go to the U.S. Open and Wimbledon. <laughs> like I, I had great plans for myself. <laughs> You're going but, to the U.S. Open. <laughs> yeah, but the problem was, yeah, I wasn't quite at the level I thought I was or, or could be. And by junior year, I really discovered other things at school that distracted me. And I just felt like I needed a break from tennis and that was that I you know I stopped playing I put down my racket and I didn't go back until I was an adult so wow yeah what were those distractions oh boys and you know those things in in Beverly Hills that can have you lose track of what your goals are sometimes No, I mean, there definitely was a lot of partying, like all the parties. I know David Stein talked a little bit about them and the lack of supervision. Very much um, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the like it was crazy because it would come Friday and everybody wanted to know, like, who was having the party or where the party was. And somebody had, you know, left their kids, their beautiful home and Always. we all would descend and sometimes there were hundreds of us tons of people at these yeah. big ass houses it yeah. was crazy yeah yeah the cops never came right i didn't even go to all these parties i David. went to a few parties i didn't go all the time <laughs> <laughs> who left me out <laughs> well i know there, there were big parties and then there was Elmo. i guess i missed out but then there were a lot of small parties we had a lot of unsupervised a lot of partying all yeah. the time in the yeah. 80s yeah at high school. i, I think, I think I was more into the small get-together you were totally at the small get-together you i may should not have... have been because that was definitely more my speed i think yeah. but mm-hmm. you know i had a lot of catching up to do because i that you're at Marymount. Well, I was at Marymount, and I <laughs> also came from New York. You know, was an athlete, and I just felt like my body is my temple. <laughs> and so I remember I went on this tennis tour in Europe, and one of the first nights we were there, we went to the Hard Rock in London, 
And for some reason, I had my first beer there and it was all downhill from <laughs> <there>. <laughs> One thing that you and I really bonded over, Margo, was sushi. Now, yes. did that start in high school between us? Yes, definitely, definitely. I can't remember who first introduced me to sushi, but I do remember having sushi with you, David, quite a lot. Yeah, we were kind of early adopters. Yeah, and we would find like the really good places that nobody knew about yet. Mm -hmm. But my first job was at Cafe Sushi on Beverly Boulevard. Oh, yeah. That was owned by the same people that owned Sushi on Sunset. Oh, right. I remember my manager at the time was Danny Bonaducci from the Partridge family. Oh, my God. Which was kind of crazy because he was like a recovering alcohol. He was in recovery or something. Oh, he was a mess. So yeah, he was. Could you imagine seeing Danny of the Partridge family be your boss at the sushi restaurant? A little weird. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he was trying to take his job really seriously, but... You know, I think he was still just probably struggling with his recovery. But the neatest thing was once um, at it was after hours and we were closing up and David Cassidy came in and Danny and him. And I think I, I think it might have been Patrick Cassidy were all like hanging out. And oh. I was like, and when growing up, I loved the Partridge I, family. Oh, I liked you love David Cassidy? I never was that into him. I actually became quite good friends with um, Ryan. No, Pat, because he was a tennis player too. And we, and we, we would play tennis together. And I was also friends with Ryan. And once, I don't know if you ever did this, Stacy. Actually, it was more than once. Do you remember Ooh. the Cassidy's used to play softball at the Hawthorne field on like the weekends, like every on a certain day, they would all play. How fun. And I think through Pat or Ryan, you know, I was there a few times and it was, yeah, it was neat. Well, I remember we became friends with your sushi chef at Cafe Sushi and he would take us to some places. Oh, really? Oh, is yeah, he yeah. the one who took us to that like place that probably is now Koreatown? Like Maybe even downtown or Koreatown? Yeah, 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 that's so funny, David. I totally forgot that. But yeah, you're right. A sushi experience that I do remember is that you and I were having sushi and Rick Schroeder arrived. You didn't think I wouldn't bring this up. No, I knew you would bring it up. <laughs> Tell me about Ricky Schroeder. Now, do you remember what I said to you? About which part? When when you discovered he was having dinner right by us. Oh, uh, no, I don't remember. <laughs> Tell us more. Oh, about him. you had a crush on him. Well, yeah, I did. I had a terrible... I think David discovered he was there, and I was like, oh, my God. I, I was just like, couldn't believe it. But, but you know, we were all taught to be, like, cool. Like, you, you know, never be starstruck, you know, just... People are people, but maybe we should explain the Beverly Hills Code because you know when we we did meet a lot of famous people yes. and and either they were famous, their parents were famous, or yeah. you would see famous people kind of just being in L.A. and being in Beverly Hills. We just treated them like regular people. Yeah. So if you saw Ricky Schroeder, you're just like, oh, look at that cute dude over there. Not I'm in love with him. <laughs> oh, no, it was not that, Stacy. It was definitely I'm in love with him. Okay, good. Good, Margo. <laughs> but I didn't say it. I, I didn't. Act, I definitely put my cool hat on because, yeah, you just you, you played it down. People were people and you never made a fuss. And that's just how you behaved. Okay. Did you talk to him? I talked to him, yes. Well, I was never shy about going up to a celebrity our own age and talking to them, so I'm sure. Yeah, you might have made the introduction, David. And and But before I knew it, we were all eating together. Oh, yeah. that's exciting. So he was there with his sister, and I think Alfonso was there. Yeah. You said, yeah I don't yeah. remember he, Alfonso yeah, being there. he was definitely there, too. I talk to Alfonso occasionally now. Oh, you do? And I wonder if he'll remember. And then... Tell me, tell me. Well, I remember saying to David at some point during that evening, I'm going to kiss him. 
Ooh, <laughs> this is getting good. I think I was just trying. Like, I was you made out with Ricky Schroeder? And I did. I did. Oh, my we God. Ended up, yeah. And it was, I felt really guilty at the time because I had just started dating my husband. My husband now that I've been married to for 29 years this month. Um, wow, so, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, we were, Son and I had just started dating. Wait, finish with Ricky Schroeder, and then we'll get on to the love that you're currently with while yeah. it was Well, no, clapping. I mean, there's really not much <laughs> to tell beyond that. So you had a beautiful, fun night of making out with Ricky Schroeder. And then they invited us to go to some club with them. And I remember I really, really wanted to go, but I was supposed to meet my husband. Well, not my husband, my boyfriend, who was I had just started dating, but he has now been my husband for 29 years. Is he going to be okay with hearing this story? Oh, yeah, he knows. That. I've told him. <laughs> And so I just was torn. I mean, we were just, you know, it wasn't anything totally serious yet with him, but I felt like I said I'd meet him after I had dinner with David or whatever. So I needed to go there. Then I ended up bringing my husband to the club that Ricky and Alfonso had invited us to. You know, it was at that point, it was like, ugh, you know, it just. It got messy. Yeah, it just got messy because I was with my boyfriend at that time. But Margo, I got to tell you, what an exciting night. And then he moved up the street from me on, I guess it was Rock. No, it wasn't Roxbury. But anyway, um, I think it might have been just like the end of Whittier, but it was above sunset. And he moved there and he had some parties at his house and I had gone there a few times after that. So we did remain friends um, and, and then lost touch. And then his sister, as, as David remembers, was there too. And His sister was really cute. And Margo got a lot further with Rick than I did with his sister, although <laughs> I tried. I got her phone number and never got a date. Oh, David. So yeah. Margo, does that mean you met your husband like, Right after high school or in high school? Or? I met my husband in college at UCLA. That's so cool. Yeah, we, we started dating and, you know, we kind of, in the beginning, things weren't totally serious, but they got more and more serious. And he then got accepted to medical school in D.C. Um, and that's what brought us back east. And that's why you're back um, east. Yeah. So at that point, we were, you know, serious enough for me to move back east with him while he went to medical school. And How the wonderful. rest is history. We are married a doctor. <laughs> you married a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's my, my Jewish. My, yeah, exactly. My, I had yeah. to throw a little in. You married a doctor. Yeah. Well, you know, my grandmother was Jewish. So I. Um, we actually did know that. Yeah, you did. And, I, and well, I had a question about that. If you're sure. So your grandmother was Jewish, right? Mm hmm. So your grandfather was Ed Sullivan. And mm -hmm. your grandmother, his wife, Elizabeth? Elizabeth, you're right. But her name was Betty. Betty. So technically, you're Jewish, but she wasn't, your mother was not raised Jewish at all. No, my, my mom was raised Catholic, and all of us were raised Catholic um, as a result. And my kids are Catholic. And yeah, that was part of the agreement when my grandfather and my grandmother were married that the whatever children they had would be raised Catholic. Very interesting. But, um, you know, I've, I've definitely grew up still with some Jewish traditions, and I've learned more about my Jewish heritage more recently within the last few years, which has been interesting. Let's segue in. So your grandfather was Ed Sullivan, mm -hmm. and so amazing. We know that, obviously, we know what you're doing right now is, is working on a documentary mm -hmm. about your grandfather. But what I'd love to know is, as him being your grandfather, how did you decide to learn a lot about his life and then the angle that you took on your new documentary, which is more learning more about his civil rights yeah. accomplishments and how he had a lot of involvement with civil rights in the 60s. So I'd love to hear about your grandfather and all those experiences. Well, you know, growing up, again, 
you know, I knew my grandfather was famous, but I really didn't understand to what extent. What I did know is that if people would find out I was Ed Sullivan's granddaughter, they would ultimately do their best, you know, Ed Sullivan impersonation to me, or, you know, they want to know if I knew the Beatles or Elvis. And I started to realize that his legacy was beginning to fade, that, you know, a lot of younger people didn't even know who he was. And if they knew who he was, they, they remembered the Beatles. <laughs> um, and I came across an article when I was just doing some research after my mom died. I just felt like I wanted to learn more about my grandparents and my heritage and my mom's family. And um, this article that I read called him a civil rights trailblazer. It was something I had never heard before. I had never knew that he had any involvement with the civil rights movement at all. And I started to do some research, really diving deep into his professional career. And he started out as a sports columnist, and then he was a Broadway columnist. He had his own uh, his own column in the New York Daily News for his whole life. And he wrote and defended inequality going back into the 1920s. From there, I started to really want to learn more about who he was. Like, where where did these views ca- come from? Because he was kind of going against the grain during a time that a lot of people didn't stand up and didn't have their voices heard with everything that was going on with racism. But he was. And so I, I literally, I went back to his hometown in Port Chester, New York, I walked in his shoes. I literally went to his high school and his the homes that he lived in. And I went to his elementary school and I read all his articles that he wrote. And I, you know, just I became a student of Ed Sullivan. <laughs> wow. What a cool journey. Yeah, I got to really know who he was, what made him tick where his views came from, then that leads me to actually what ended up, (laughs) I'm going to backtrack a little bit because after my kids kind of grew up and didn't need me as much, I was living here in Maryland and I just, you know, was in a funk. I, I didn't really know really what my ultimate like purpose in life was. And I remember before I left LA I wanted to be in entertainment. I wanted to be a producer. You know, I wanted to do something in television or film. Of course, I real, you know, my dream also was, you know, to get married and have children and which I did and I couldn't be happier with, with those choices. But then in terms of, you know, something for me, kind of more of an intellectual side of myself that I wanted to get into, it just wasn't there. And I couldn't quite figure out what I should do. And then I thought, well, I can't really go back into entertainment because here I am living in Annapolis, Maryland, and there's really not much here for that. But Annapolis started the Annapolis Film Festival. And I got involved in that. And through that, I was able to watch a ton of documentary films and watching the documentary films sparked an idea in myself that nobody's done a documentary on my grandfather. I think there's a story to be told here. If it's not just his life story, he was a very interesting man. And why shouldn't I be the one to tell that story? The Annapolis Film Festival also led me to meet some people. One of these people was Malcolm X's oldest daughter. Ambassador Shabazz. And she was introduced to me at the film festival. And when she was introduced to me, I was in awe of her and knowing her life experience. But she seemed so excited to meet Ed Sullivan's granddaughter. We had this wonderful conversation. And she said to me, you don't understand what your grandfather's show meant to me you know, and meant to my family, we would all get together, we would watch the show. And 
we would actually see people that look like us on, on the television. And she actually was at the film festival with another person who was also very instrumental in, in getting this project off the ground. Um, her name's Suzanne Kay, and Suzanne is the daughter of Diane Carroll. So um, Ambassador Shabazz and Suzanne Kay kind of took me under their wing a little bit. And Amazing. we started just a brainstorm, you know, well, why did this, why, you know, what was different about my grandfather's show for you? One of the things I remember they really encouraged me to do is really find out what made him tick, you know, and make, and we wanted to make sure that in no way, shape or form, my grandfather made his decisions just to make a buck, you know, mm -hmm. and, and to get ratings. It was the opposite. The fact is that he was writing about this way before he had a television show. There were times where sponsors wanted to drop him as well. He stood up to, you know, network brass and, sure. and several advertisers who complained about him having not only black entertainers on the show, but the way he would treat them, which was, you know, like the way that we would treat everyone. Right. So through television, he really um, was able to transcend the platform and empower black entertainers which paved the way for like equality and unity in the country. It was quiet, you know, it was kind of an unspoken way he did it. Um, he was never a crusader, he was just himself. And by being himself, he was able to bridge a divided country because he was just authentic. He was who he was. He would kiss Pearl Bailey, yeah. he loved Pearl Bailey, shake Nat King Cole's hand and people would go crazy. Like, what are you doing? And he would get hate mail about it, but he didn't care. He just did what he felt was right. This documentary, by no means, we want it to come across as if he was some sort of like savior, white savior. What he did was he was more of a white ally. He was able to empower black entertainers to just do their thing and show the world what they can do by giving them this platform. And it was the biggest platform in the, yeah. in the United in the States. In the yeah. world. Yeah. It was unbelievable. Like 60 million people apparently watched the Beatles. Um, on the average, I think the audience was about 30 million, 40 million. It's a lot. But I think that this documentary at least will basically shows how important it is today, you know, even for us to all embrace humanity, you know, and, and I hope whoever views it, hopefully people will, takes that message away. Because I think if we all act the right way, then it's contagious and it becomes kind of a, hopefully part of a movement. Yeah. What an incredible man and have him as your grandfather, but incredible how he really, like you said, quietly mm -hmm. really formed and helped the civil rights movement and really mm -hmm. allowed these black, allowed black people onto a show and treated him, them just like any other person. And even with the backlash that he probably received, your grandfather prevailed and knew yeah. that that's who he was. And yeah. I think just to know that that was what was so important in him as a person, mm -hmm. nothing more incredible than that. We could use him on TV today because we need, we need his voice now. Yeah. Well, I just, you know, feel very honored and humbled to be able to tell his story oh, amazing. and, and be able to carry on his legacy because he's so much more than that awkward guy on stage. I mean, there's so many different stories you could end up telling about his life. This one is something that makes me personally tremendously proud. And I'm really happy that it's kind of coming together now. Been working on it for five years. <laughs> so I'm so glad you've been persevering and getting it made. And certainly there is nobody better to tell the story than you. What was that like following his footsteps, your grandfather's footsteps, when you back, went back to a school in Port Chester and things about when he was it young? It was 
surreal. It was just surreal. Actually, another thing that happened during that period is I accepted an award at his high school for him. They had like a Hall of Fame and they reached out to me and I was able to accept his this award on his behalf. Amazing. That led to me meeting the mayor of Port Chester, who um, I spoke to and, and I asked him, it's strange that you guys don't have like a street name or, right. you know, anything. Auditorium. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like your favorite son. You know, they all loved him. He said, well, that's a really great idea. And so last October, not this last October, um, my siblings and I went to Port Chester for the naming of Ed Sullivan Street. So that's on the street amazing. that he lived on. So. <laughs> Yeah. Of course, he's got a little thing named after him in New York City called the Ed Sullivan Theater. Yeah, that we're very proud of. That's very cool. Yeah. Very cool. That's where they filmed David Letterman. and. Yeah. Yeah. I've been there several times, actually. And last or a few years ago, I went back to the Sullivan Theater with some of the people that worked on the Sullivan show. And Oh, wow. They took me around and showed me my grandfa- where my grandfather's dressing room was and where the secretaries were and where people would hang out and wait. And so it was kind of neat seeing it through their eyes. Do you have a, a special badge where you can just go into the theater at any time? <laughs> well, I had a special friend that worked there. <laughs> um, so he pretty much, he's like, anytime you want to come. How old were you when he passed? Do you remember fond memories of your grandfather? I have a few memories of my grandfather. He passed away when I was in third grade, so mm. I was quite young. I just remember him really being around for dinners, you know, usually Sunday. Well, I don't know. Yeah, because it would have been after the show was done. Sundays and I remember him doing magic tricks, you know, like how people take their thumb, you know, and, and pretend to eat their thumb. They're taking their thumb oh, off. Oh, take your or, thumb away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or getting like a quarter behind my ear. Yeah, just kind of like little snippets like nice. that. I, there was also a boy I remember at Fox Meadow Elementary School who wanted my grandfather's autograph. And I remember feeling really embarrassed that I didn't want to ask him for his autograph for this boy. But this boy was actually starting to bully me. And and he did. Grandpa, <laughs> give me the autograph. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I just remember this kind of sweet moment where I must have told my mom what was going on. And my mom told him. And he kind of took me into this room in our house and... I was sitting on his knee and he was just saying, you know, you don't ever have to be afraid to ask me, you know, anything, you know, I'm here for you. Kind of like a little sweet moment. And I got his autograph for that. All right, good. For the bratty kid. (laughs) Do you remember ever being on the set? Um, No, I don't. Although actually I do sort of. I have weird, uh, I've been back to the theater and I've had some memories of going down to where the bathrooms are there. So I know I must have been there. You know, like when you've gone somewhere Mm -hmm. and you're like, I know I've been here. Um, Mm -hmm. I just, things are very familiar there to me. So I I think I was. So then your father was also the producer of the show. Yeah, he was. He was. My dad produced, came on in 1960. Was he already married to your mother? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... The story of that is that um, my mom and dad met at UCLA. They have an interesting story of how they met. They actually were introduced to each other through Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. My mom at the time was really close friends with Elizabeth Taylor. She was in a film, or maybe she wasn't. I, I, I might get the story a little mixed up, but... There was a story Bob Hope was definitely in, and it was called The Great Lover, or The Greatest Lover, mm-hmm. The Great Lover. And there was a contest at UCLA for The Great Lover, and that was a contest among the sorority girls had to vote what 
fraternity guy they thought was the great lover. Get your mind out of the gutters. It wasn't like, (laughs) but it was like probably most handsome, charming, you know, very PC, 1950s. My dad won. I was looking at some old pictures of him. He was a good looking guy. Yeah, very, very good looking guy. I mean, he looked like a movie star and he won. And the prize, I guess, was a date with Elizabeth Taylor to the opening of The Great Lover. Oh, my gosh. Wow. What a contest. (laughs) Yeah. So my dad, I guess, accepted it or what, you know, this prize. She didn't want to go to this opening with this guy from UCLA that she didn't know, you know, without having a friend there. So she asked my mom, who also went to UCLA, to, well, I think my mom had, she asked my mom to check him out and make sure he was presentable, you know, for for this affair, and then go with another friend and be like, do a double date. So the four of them went, my mom met my dad, and the rest is history. That's amazing. Liz Taylor marries a lot of people. She could have easily married your father. She could have been, she could have been your mother. <laughs> oh, gosh. I, don't know. I think I'll keep my mom <laughs> for sure. Your mom, actually, I read a little bit, had an, an incredible childhood growing up as this, right, as a sing, as she was the only child of, of your grandparents. And didn't right. she live in hotels and go yeah. out and about with them around the town when she was young? And yeah. that must have been an unbelievable life for a young girl or hard and I'm sure very hard. Yeah. Very um, different. Yeah, very, very different. She was like one of the, or the original Eloise who lived in the hotel. Um, the plaza. Yeah. She actually moved to Beverly Hills when she was about seven years old. She went to Hawthorne. Oh, wow. (laughs) So I have a picture. The smallest world. Yeah. One of the things I dug up during all of this is her class picture from Hawthorne. We would love it. I'll send you guys some stuff. Thank you. She loved living in Beverly Hills. It was the only time she lived in a house. I've actually gone back to her house, this part of my journey that I've been on. Sure. I've gone to her house. I've taken like side by side pictures of when she was there when she was a little girl and as it looks now, which is pretty much the same. Wow. That was the happiest time she always said in her life when she got to live in a house and walk to school and she had a bite. So she must have really loved a stable life when with your dad being a, she was I more of a so. mom and yeah. she had a stable life. It must yeah. have been a wonderful time for her. Yeah. And moving to Scarsdale and all of that. I think that is really what she always wanted. She didn't enjoy living in hotels for sure. Yeah. It wasn't ideal for a young girl. How did it work out that she got that time in Beverly Hills with the show being taped in New York? It's a good question, David. My grandfather got a job working for the Hollywood beat for the Daily News. And mm-hmm. in addition, he actually was a screenwriter on several films at the time. And he was in a few films at the time as well. And he, and he was terrible. <laughs> they, they didn't do very well. There are a few films where he basically plays himself, right? I mean, he's just being him. One called Mr. Broadway, and he basically played himself. And I don't think it did very well at all, but it was something he dabbled in for a little bit. And I think he enjoyed that. I mean, I've read some things about some of the parties they would have at their house and you know, these 1930s parties with every big celebrity that you could think of of the time. And they would play like house games and dance and hide and go see. Could you imagine (laughs) these famous people at your house were like, all right, go and hide, hide and seek with our martinis and playing music and having fun. Amazing. My mom had some really funny stories about those times. And she, as a little girl, would be up on the balcony kind of watching through through the slits up there. And wow. it was a neat time. She had told me, and I always thought it was pretty cool, that she went to Shirley Temple's birthday party. <laughs> uh, that is very cool. <laughs> yeah, on set. 
on set. So like, I think it was something the studio did and they were probably trying to round up a bunch of kids. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, we need another kid or two. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if they serve Shirley Temples. <laughs> After the show, uh, the Ed Sullivan show, your dad still went on to produce many, many things. He was known for being very good at producing live television shows mm-hmm. and variety type shows. So he went on and did actually a lot of uh, award shows. He did the Grammys, the People's Choice, uh, the oh Golden Globes. And when I was younger, when I was, you know, a young well, teenager in high school, when he would be producing one of the, like the Golden Globes, I got to go. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, it was really fun going to those shows. And did you go to a lot of them? Like, or, or if it, if it was convenient? Yeah. How fun. I know I went to a People's Choice and a Golden Globes and, you know, I'd sit at the table. Oh, and the one that I remember the most vividly is going to the Golden Globes and sitting with Val- Valerie Bertinelli and her husband, Eddie, Van Halen. Eddie Val- Van Halen. And I was probably like 14 or 15. And Eddie Van-, Van Halen was just, he was just, he was like, they described him as impish. And he was, he was just like a kid. And I was sitting there and I was probably pretty nervous. And I just remember him like literally blowing smoke in my face <laughs> like just for fun and and Valerie Bertinelli like scolding him like would you stop doing that to her you know what, what are you doing you know that's great yeah and, he, and he's like I'm just a rock star so yeah <laughs> what does it matter see I wasn't really into his music or anything back then so he wasn't anything special to me uh, and I just remember thinking oh, that guy just kept blowing smoke in my face he was so rude <laughs> so rude I love it so rude Eddie Van Halen and now I realize you're part of this very uh, show business family but I always think of your family as being kind of the opposite they never really felt very comfortable I have to say in the entertainment world I mean my dad came from very modest background and he married my mom and but you know they were really kind of down to earth type people I know I tell these stories and it makes it sound like we had this crazy life but they never really felt comfortable in it and my dad during the 80s um, invested in some television and cable stations and when I graduated from UCLA they ended up moving to Montana so he could like oversee and manage his television stations. And he was basically like semi-retired from producing at that time. He was just doing the country music award shows, which he did for many, many years. That's just who they were. I mean, my, my mom, like you said, like, you know, living in a house and having a normal light, like that's all I think she really wanted. And when I started, I remember, uh, you know, I, I talk about coming into El Rodeo. I never told anybody, you know, who my grandfather, like nothing. And I don't right. think any of the kids knew, quite honestly, I, I because no. I didn't tell them. And everybody was somebody. So, like, you know, my grandfather had passed away, you know. Right. You're a regular kid amongst all of us that may not have been that regular, but we were all just regular kids. That's what I know my parents wanted for me is that they never wanted it to affect our morals and values as as people. That's great. You, know, you and them always seem very down to earth, unless you were kissing Ricky Schroeder in the bathroom. <laughs> well, you know, David, I do have this wild streak. <laughs> Margo, you just wanted your own personal Hollywood stories, too. <laughs> no, it's funny because, you know, there's a few people that I share these stories to around here, and they're like, oh my God, Margo, I just want to hear more, you know, tell us more. And, I, you know, it just seems like a million years ago, you know, it does. It just seems like a different lifetime ago. 
It was, but yeah. luckily it's part of you and amazing to have this integrated into who you are and yeah. look at the art you're creating moving forward. I mean, what you're, this project you're working on sounds so incredible and really looking forward to Thank seeing you. that come together. It's really coming full circle because you're a producer now, like your father and you're doing a, about That's your grandfather. That's actually been super amazing for me is that even though I live here in Annapolis, Maryland, I've been able to realize my, all my dreams really have come true. You know, I married a wonderful guy of three great daughters and I have this second career of something I've been dreaming of doing since I was a child. So, um, you know, can't complain. That's wonderful. That makes me feel so nice to hear this about you. And it's so wonderful. The only thing that's missing is that Wimbledon Cup. I know. Really. Well, I don't think that was ever going to happen. That was all in my head. You know? <laughs> well, yeah, you yeah. never know. Margo, we can't thank you enough for doing this with us. It's been Margo, a delight. Thank you, Margo. It's been so much fun. Thank you. And um, yeah, I look forward to hearing more of your guests in the future. This has been a lot of fun. Well, thank you, Margo, for coming on to Growing Up Beverly Hills. And it was so great talking with you. Thanks again. Thanks, guys. Bye. 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 Welcome to the Beverly Hills Breakdown. Beverly Hills Breakdown. It's that time again, Stacy. She talks about Howard Hughes crashing into her house. And that crash happened in 1946. And he was actually flying an experimental spy plane. And it was a pretty serious accident. She was right. He almost died. He had a 50-50 chance of living. Oh, it was crazy because the plane took off. I think it said it took off from Culver City and was flying and went down in Beverly Hills. It hit two houses and then skidded across, hit her house, I believe, on Linden, and then went into the other house, and the other house caught fire. So it was a crazy amount of damage. Yeah, I think he was trying to land at the... LA Country Club, which is right next door to that. So I think he saw the empty space of the golf course and tried to make an emergency landing and just missed. Just missed. Didn't quite get the landing. Didn't stick the landing. Didn't stick the landing. Then Stacy, she mentions the witch's house, which is a favorite of everybody who grew up in Beverly Hills. Yeah. And then I just learned that it was called the Spadina family home. Nobody's ever called it that. I know it was called the Spadina family home. Never heard that. (laughs) Well, when you have me do homework, look what I find. So the house is on the corner of Walden and Carmelita Avenue in Beverly Hills. And it was originally built by a Hollywood art director named Harry Oliver. And it was built in 1921. And it landed in Beverly Hills in 1926. And it currently stands there today. It had gone through a couple families. But in the late 90s, It was in total disarray and about to really be torn down and not doing well. And a local real estate agent named Mike LeBeau bought the property, fully restored it, and now the witch's house is a Beverly Hills landmark for all of us to enjoy forever. Oh, that's good. And get candy forever. Nice. I wonder if they still give out great candy. Margot tells an amazing story about how her parents met, and it was all thanks to Liz Taylor. Her father was chosen as the great lover, quote unquote, on the campus of UCLA while they were both going to UCLA at the time. And the winner got to go to the premiere of The Great Lover with Liz Taylor. Now, Margot wasn't sure if Liz Taylor was in that film, and she wasn't. Bob Hope was, and it premiered in 1949. So Liz was 17. And Margot's mother was 19 at the time. Margot's mom and Liz Taylor were good friends, so they went on a double date. And Liz was supposed to be with, you know, Margot's dad, but it went the opposite way. So Margot's mom and dad went on that double date and hooked up. You have to really believe in fate. Or believe in love. Then Margot met her husband at UCLA. So amazing that Margot's mom and dad met at UCLA. And then probably 30 years later, Margot met her husband at UCLA. What a world. What a small world. Then she also brought up almost all of the Cassidys. Now, there's a lot of Cassidys. There's Pat, Ryan, and Sean. And then we all know their half-brother, David Cassidy, from the Partridge family, where he starred with his stepmother, Shirley Jones. 
And they grew up in Beverly Hills, and it was super fun because Margot asked if we had gone to the Cassidy's softball games that were at Hawthorne Elementary School um, every weekend. And the answer was, no, we didn't, but we wish we did. Another thing nobody invited me to. (laughs) David. (laughs) I can't complain. I got invited to lots of things. Now, all of these kids have been in show business and are in show business and active. They're all singers, dancers, Broadway performers, a pretty amazing, talented family. Very much so. Well, I really enjoy talking to Margot. I love talking to Margot. No, I did. No, really, David, we both love talking to Margot. Yeah, I think you didn't know her that well, so I hope you got to know her better. I didn't know Margot well, and I did get to know her better, and she's super cool, and we learned that we actually had a couple things in common. Quite a lot. Quite a lot, and it was a lot of fun. I just love our Scarsdale connection. That makes me feel comfortable about that. But we had a lot in common. It was a lot of fun. We loved having Margot on the show. Well, thank you all for listening. As always, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook, and subscribe, and give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Heck yeah! Bye! Bye. Suicide has personally affected my life. If you or anyone you know is struggling or having a hard time, there is help out there. Please reach out to the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255.